This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Judy Cotton, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a real privilege to get an artist of your calibre on this show. I, I'm, I'm absolutely Thank chuffed. You. I'm so oh, glad. <laughs> I'm so glad we're able to pull it off. Living with Zoom meetings these days anyway, right? Yeah. Judy, I really pushed back because in the past we only did um, podcasts in person because well, I yeah. like the interaction. That's but then I had to really embrace um, Zoom, obviously. And one of the positives oh. is that it has given me access to people like you. Like it's been wonderful. It's odd, but it's wonderful. Do you know what I mean? We've all adjusted in these last two and a half years to yeah. a strange life. Yeah, we have. You know, obviously there's been huge negatives, but also some positives. Let me introduce you. Judy Cotton is an internationally recognised visual artist whose work is held in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The uh, Is it the Lyman Allen? Lyman Allen Museum, Florence Griswold Museum, Australian National Gallery, a bunch of other museums that have different names. Mm-hmm. So thank you. I mean, I'm 80. I'm sorry, I'm 81 now. So at this point, I have to have achieved something. <laughs> Yeah, you have. Um, Judy um, was born and raised in Australia but has lived in the US since 1971. From 74 to 93, she was a New York uh, contributing editor for Vogue Australia, writing about New York and the art world. She has now, and that's why we're talking with her today, have published her first memoir and it's called Swimming Home, of which I adored it and I adore the title. Let oh, me that's tell you wonderful. that. Yeah. I want to talk about the body of work, of course, but firstly, I want to talk about where you grew up and how you how you kind of ended up not living in your homeland. Well, I grew up, I was born in Broken Hill, lived there for two years, and we left when I, my brother was born and I was two, but I still remember standing in the red earth of that garden in Broken Hill and feeling the dry grasses, and I always feel like that red earth stayed with me forever. And then we moved to the tiny frosty hill town of Oberon in New South Wales, up in the Blue Mountains. My dad had been, it was the war years, 1943, when we moved there. And my dad had a commission from the government to begin a timber industry to provide pit props for the mines, because of course, the shipments from Oregon, the miners had huge faith in their pit props props from Oregon could no longer come because of the war. And he knew the timbers and they knew that he knew the timbers because they'd sent him on a walking trip. I think the year I was born, 1941. So he loved the area. We all loved the area. What a place to grow up in the Blue Mountains on a farm. Gorgeous, particularly back then, I'd imagine. Um, I know, yes. O'Brien, it's, um, it gets quite cold in winter. I think it might have been It's freezing in winter, snowy. 
Even a little ice, he used to stamp home from schools, treading in all the puddles with ice, cracking as much ice as possible, getting as wet as I possibly could, driving my mother crazy, and wearing um, the snowsuit that my wicked Auntie Jean had sent me. Of course, my mother and she did not get on. She's one of the um, uh, facets of the book, and we were never allowed to keep her presence. But one year, my mother allowed us to keep the snowsuits, and mine was red with golden, I mean, they weren't gold, but elephant buttons. And I thought it was the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen. And I used to just roll home in the snow in it. And so then where were you for your teenage years and where did you study? Well, by the time I left school early, I was finished at 16 and my mother wanted me to go back for a year to get out of her way. But I said no. But by then my father was really on his way upward into really a major political career. And my parents would sweep everyone around them into sort of staff aid service. I I don't think they could help it. So much was going on. And I remember going to bed one night when I was 16 and thinking to myself, okay, you have three choices. You stay, you become a staff aid, you go under. You break with them completely and leave and can be your own person forever. Or you leave the country and you can still love them. And that's what I chose to do a somewhat self-imposed exile. That said, I also wanted to go to New York to find out what the art scene was, to find out what new painting was. I didn't want to go to France, as the French ambassador's wife had suggested to me. I did not want to do surrealism or impressionism or any of those things. I wanted to see that big, bold, new abstraction that American paintings painters were doing at that time. And I was lucky enough then to land in the middle of that art scene and meet and um, spend time with a lot of the people there and begin my practice as an artist and show in New York and other countries. So how old were you when you left Australia? Oh, let me see. The first time I left, I left with my first husband, who was an Australian diplomat, and my son was five, so I would have been 26, something like that. So that was my first. I spent a year in South Korea, and my marriage broke up there. And I took my son and went to Japan. And I just loved Tokyo. I spent a year in Tokyo and I I was a single mother, not kind of realizing at the time what it cost to be a single mother. So what I was in Japan and one always is in Japan is gaijin, is foreign. And I liked that. I liked the fact that I didn't fit in. I liked the fact that I got to be a viewer rather than the viewed. You know, when you walk down the street in Japan in those days, you were just foreign. You weren't somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, somebody's mother. You're just this big old foreigner. Mm -hmm. And I loved so much about Japanese culture. I loved the cleanliness, the quiet, the intense politeness, and and also the um, huge crowds I loved. I loved so much that I saw there. I agree with you. I only went to Japan very recently. I think it was a year before COVID, so maybe three or four years ago. And I landed in Tokyo for two weeks. And do you know, I just loved it. I It was That's so it. the shock of the new, wasn't it? Isn't, isn't it fabulous? Yeah, I culturally mean, so if different. You've got, it, then you've got it. And I just love these tiny little restaurants where you slide mm. open this little shoji jaw and you come in and they say, Rashaimas. And you know, you can sit on one of the four stools and you'll have something wonderful to eat and it won't cost a fortune and they're just wonderful. Mm. And there is so much in part of that culture there, the screens and um, just 
the reductiveness of the culture, the way they have reduced it to that which is the least. In other words, what I think a famous writer said once, if I'd had more time, I would have written less. And in a way, the Japanese culture has managed to reduce some of the marvelous themes from China and Korea to this particular aesthetic that is Japanese. And I think it's something that affected my painting very deeply, the sense that less is more, mm -hmm. if you can manage to do it. Mm. When I so met in New York, said to me, takes two people to paint the painting, Judy. And I said, what? He said, the painter to paint it and someone to shoot them before they finish. Yeah, wonderful. Now, how does a single mother ah. <laughs> start a career as an artist in an industry that, you know, is notorious, particularly at the time, for the women being the subjects and not the painters? Yes. Talk to me about how that came about because well, that wouldn't have been easy. I think what I realised writing the memoir is just how obstinate I really am. And I had not, I don't think, understood how completely bloody-minded I could be until I wrote it and realised that given the opportunity, I say, I'm going forward and you're not going to stop me. Now, probably I learned that from my father who saw an open door and walked through it, but, you know, also from my mother. So my family inheritance is strong, as is the work ethic. I mean, we work. I mean, I still work. I remember saying to friends, I'd love to see you, but I've got to work this week. And they're like, but you're 81. You don't have to work now. And I say, yeah, I have to work. It's in the, it's in the genes. Were you painting in Japan? When did you yes. start painting? Well, I held on. Oh, well, I had already had a show in Canberra before I left for um, South Korea. I had a show in South Korea. Then I managed to get a show in Tokyo, flew over for that, realized that my marriage was in pieces, went home, packed up my son and came back to Tokyo, did not believe in alimony. And um, so I was pretty strung out in terms of finances. I lived on the local economy in a tiny tatami apartment with just two rooms and cold water tap. But you know what? I loved it. We had um, futon and uh, tatami floor and a tiny little table with four cushions to sit on. And you know how uncomplicated is that? We had a tiny bathroom. Um, I worked at a gallery doing the English correspondence, not the gallery that would show my work. And I illustrated a book, The Birds of South Korea, and I taught English at night to Japanese businessmen. I mean, you make your way. Were you painting at home? Where were you doing your art? I would paint on the floor at night or on the weekend when I had time, you could get these wonderful um, rice paper covered panels in Japan and I would paint on those. And then I had another show and the Japanese artists were very kind to me. They were actually lovely. They took me to Tokyo University to use the lithographic presses. They took me around all the woodblock print shops, the Ukiyo-e print shops to show me how things were made. Uh, there was a lot of kindness shown me in Japan. And then again, too, I was really poor. The people I lived amongst, the Japanese I lived amongst, I wasn't like this wealthy foreigner to them. So sometimes there would be a little knock on my door and a Japanese lady who was living nearby would be wearing her kitchen apron and she would hold out in her hand two dumplings that she'd been making for dinner. Say, dozo, you know. So she would bring me a little offering from their dinner and then I would reply with bread from this French pastry shop, which was up the street because they loved everything that was French. So I'd give them bread and honey. Mm. But I mean, it was simple and it was deeply rewarding in a way 
I never found South Korea rewarding. I didn't fit in in South Korea. I wasn't a good diplomat's wife. Clearly, that's not a role I was cut out for. So then uh, tell me your journey to New York. Well, I left my first husband in South Korea and I went to Japan, to Tokyo with my son, who was then six. I put him in an international school there so he would not be too torn by culture. So they did Japanese two days a week and English and American three days a week. So I worked there for a year. And then in order to get my divorce finalized, came back to Australia, spent nine months in Australia living at my sister's because I couldn't get any apartment to take me for a short term with a child. So my sister very kindly put me up, but um, I had her little daughters to play with as well. And then I went to, um, I went to America at the end of 1970, 1970, the last day of 1970, I landed in America with what was then my American boyfriend. And he was actually in the foreign office and um, the foreign office, I did not want to marry him. The foreign office refused to let us live together and said we had to be married. And then I did the stupidest, one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. I said to him, well, I'll marry you on condition that you divorce me when I ask for it which, you know, I'm sorry, where was my brain? I should just have fought my way on my own. We went to New York and I just fell for New York big time. I started working for Vogue, I think, by then. And um, when my marriage, of course, split up pretty shortly, I got a job in a gallery and supported myself there selling wildlife prints of uh, pheasants and ducks and fish and writing for Vogue and writing for some American magazines just you know, I made my way. One does. And when did you think that your career launched in New York? Because I can imagine, I mean, there was so much happening in New York at the time and and there were so many big names. I did meet a lot of them and uh, some of them were very kind to me. Ken Noland was wonderfully kind. I saw a conversation from him the other day. We said, how are you going? And I said, slogging through the muck. And he said, don't worry, I'm slogging through the muck too. So he was kind. Helen Frankenthaler was distinctly cold. I met her at a party and I said, finally, as we were standing, staring at each other, I said, hi, I'm Judy Cotton and put out my hand. And she very slowly and deliberately took her glove off finger by finger, shook my hand and then slowly and deliberately put her glove back on again. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Robert Motherwell was amazingly kind, a great philosophical thinker about art. I think by virtue of the fact that I was young and eager and working and also writing for Vogue gives you an amazing entree, people want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So I had at the time that Australia bought Blue Poles, I had just started working for Vogue and they said, find out how people think about it. And I managed to get the telephone number of the most famous art critic at the time, Clement Greenberg, and he wouldn't comment for anybody, but he said, I will comment for you, but you have to come over. And so I went over to his apartment on the west side, and um, I remember he was barefoot and blowing his nose, and then he showed me around his collection, which was amazing. And I didn't know any better than to say, I like it, I don't like it. And then he said, that's what I like about Australians, they're straightforward. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I want to talk about um, its blue poles, isn't it? I want to yes. talk, talk about it because it kind of was a marker in Australian art history, wasn't it? Completely so. That was the moment when Australia grew up in a way in the art world and there was so much fuss about blue poles. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the truth is they got it for, what was it, two million? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Clement Greenberg complained that they could have had another painting called Lavender Mist, which he thought was a much better painting for much less money. And I said, but, you know, blue poles put Australia and the National Gallery on the art scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gave Australia and its economy, such publicity. It was a really smart move. And look, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I often, you know, when I go to the gallery, I'll always stop. Um, yeah, you have, have to. Look. You have to, don't you? Sort of, you know, I think, I mean, I was very young at the time, but I do remember it. I do remember the controversy. But I kind of thought at the time that now we were playing with the big guys. And you were playing with the big guys. That is exactly what happened. That opened up the Australian art world to the international scene. And it had not been like that before. One of the reasons I left is that you could hit the ceiling too quickly. Mm -hmm. There was nothing much happening in the art scene there. I mean, there are wonderful painters like Fred Williams, you know, and, and the names are eluding me right now, Charles Blackman, others like that. Wonderful painters. And Fred Williams had had international exposure, but it hadn't opened the Australian art scene. And that, with the stroke of blue poles, it slid open that, you know, embryonic sack, if you will, and released Australia in full grown. Did it have a domino effect on you in New York? Did it open any doors for you? Because, one, you're still female and you're still playing in a man's world. The men's world then was extremely tough. Mm-hmm. Um, the art world I entered was as tough as nails. And, of course, all the men thought that, you know, your role as a female artist was to sleep with them. And this or, is when I model learned, for them. And I learned to swear like a trooper because I think I was trying to prove I'm every bit as tough as you and excuse me, but F off. So I learned to swear and I learned, of course, say no, which they, was shocking to them because I think a lot of females went along with the play. I wasn't going to go along with it. I'm obnoxious enough obstinate enough that I'm not. I'm not and you weren't going to be amused. Never going to be. No. No. I mean, this is my own road. It's not it's not a road that I take held by the hand by someone else. So tell me about your living because it would have been, I mean, it's always been a hugely um, expensive city. So you're there, you probably don't I'm, I'm gathering you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> I don't have a lot of money. So no. I have not money, but we managed to get a co-op apartment for something like $40,000 or that was what we sold it for. So, but of course in the divorce, he was brutal and made me give him my half of the apartment as well in order to get rid of him. And you know, at that point you just think, fine, take the damn money and get the F away from me, which 
I did, and then held down a bunch of jobs, and then met my third husband, who was the absolute love of my life, with whom I spent nearly 40 years. And finally, my son, he would come down and have dinner with us, and he would say, come in to move into my place, and I'd say, thank you, but no thank you. And my son, one Easter vacation, asked for his keys, and he had walked Yale's dog for two years before I went out with Yale, before I knew him. And I mean, I met him, but I didn't know him. And he asked for Yale's keys and Yale thought he was going to walk the dog. And I thought he was going to walk the dog and I went to work. And when I came home, he had gone to the supermarket with his friends, got cardboard boxes in the supermarket trolley, moved all his possessions up to Yale's, chosen a room and moved in with Yale. So... I lived by myself for a week and then I realized, okay, my son is living with Yale. I'm going to move up and live with Yale too. So then I went to live with Yale and um, he said that we should get married. I said, no, I'm really bad at getting married. Please don't make me marry you. But he asked me every day for a year until I finally gave in. And honestly, I was so happy with him. He was a wonderful man to be with. He was an ex-race car driver, an ex-cowboy, an ex-Golden Gloves boxer. He had done everything. And by the time I met him, he had gone to work at the Metropolitan Museum in objects conservation and installed the sculptures on the roof of the Metropolitan. So through him, I got to have these amazing times downstairs in the Metropolitan Museum when it was closed on Mondays, meeting the curators and the conservators and spending time with the art. I mean, what an education that was. It was fabulous. Extraordinary. What an experience. And the love of my life. Mm. And he died after we'd had a perfectly wonderful day. I said, let's just wait. It was a hot day before we go swimming. And he was sitting in a chair watching car racing. And I came in and told him a joke. He laughed at the joke and died in three seconds without a struggle. Mm-hmm. Now that was hell for me, but what a way for a race car driver to go. In that second, his heart stopped. And then now I'm without him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know he was a lovely man. He was a lovely man. Talk to me about where you think, what was the point at which your career, do you think, launched? At the point where, because I talk to writers so much, I guess it's when their their book finally sold and, you know, which book it was that actually sold the most. That's kind of the trajectory in a career. What is it in art? Well, I suppose once you're showing with a really established gallery in New York City, which is what I did all through the 80s and 90s, uh, not 80s, sorry, I started in the 90s into the 2000s and then um, the gallery went out of business and we t- we retired here and I think I showed, oh gosh, I went out to Colorado, I showed in Wyoming, a um, bunch of places and we had just retired here uh, to the place in the country which we had started off as a little cottage for weekends when we were working in the city and we retired up here and I got to, I built my studio here right at the beginning of my career when we got the land because I thought, listen, I've been paying a massive amount of rent on down on the Bowery. And, you know, I'm a struggling artist. I can't afford this. But if I have my studio, then I've always got my studio. So I built the studio with the, a year I'd made quite a bit of money. And I've had that studio ever since. I'm working in that studio today. And in fact, now we're looking at me and my studio assistants who helped me also here are looking at NFTs and how we actually move into the next phase of the art world. I had a big show at the Lyman Allen Museum 
which covered, I think, uh, six to eight galleries inside and then 12 acres outside. So we had uh, three-dimensional works and then paintings all through the galleries and through the external gardens. And one of the things that became very popular is I had a huge boat made called a drift of driftwood, which actually landed on the river beach where we are. So we collected it over a period of a year and built this huge boat of driftwood, which I was planning to burn as we environmentally are burning our boats. But then the fire marshal of New London said we couldn't burn it. And that, um, and the head of the Coast Guard said we couldn't burn it. And it's become so popular. People love it and um, climb all over it. So that's four years later. And we are making a 3D version of it. It should be printed by the end of next week, which will give the museum to sell at their gala. So that's kind of an ongoing relationship I have with that museum. And when I come back from Australia in September, I'll be doing a small show of um, pigment prints there that deal with the way that culture is changing. Do you identify as American or as Australian? Australian. Mm. I do. I'm Australian. Yeah. I like living in America. I like the long distance vision. I kind of like being an outsider. I guess I've always quite liked that. Uh, now, I like the ability to sit back from a distance and look. But I mean, the, the trip's home of being so overwhelmingly sensual in the sense that Australia is physically overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I'd like to point out that this strange place the Europeans occupy in this land, given the traditional inhabitants were here for tens of thousands of years before we immigrated, and we fell in love and stole it. Mm, we did. What made you write your memoir? Well, I turned 80 during the pandemic. And, you know, as you sort through your papers, I realized that I had been writing notes for this book for a long time. Every trip back, I'd write notes and then I'd put them away in a drawer. And it's at 80, you think, okay, it's time to stop hiding. Sometimes I do that with my art as well. I hide it. Um, I just put it away and don't show anybody. And then you think, Okay, you're 80. Get over it. Stand up and tell your truth. And do I you mean, think- I, I tried to tried to tell the truth. I I didn't. It's not an autobiography. It's literally a memoir where I'm remembering the family and the dynamics of that family. Why I felt I had to leave. Who we struggled with. How they struggled with each other. And some of the tragedy and loss that occurred in that family. It's it's kind of begin it almost childishly and then try to go through as the mature individual. So I almost tried to write it as if I were young and then I were growing older and to bring that huge physical sense that Australia drenches one with really nothing here is like that. Bird call is lovely, but it's nothing like that. No. I live near the water. It's lovely, but it's nothing like that. Do you know what I found? Because I spend um, a good part of the year in San Francisco. Oh, nice. Yeah, I have friends there and I've been doing that for 15 years. But the thing that is most striking to me when I come back is the light and the sky. Isn't it astounding? It's astounding, isn't it? Australia's, as I think it's, I put it somewhere, Australia's vast emptiness. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you look up and it's different, you know. And yes, there's room for things to echo in the sky there and the colors are extraordinary now i had some blistering sunsets here that just in the winter time are amazing this great red ball of a sun goes down in a golden sky and i've been recording some of that 
but for another later work, it doesn't overwhelm me. I'm sort of still here visiting. I mean, I live here and there's a lot about America that one loves. Of course, not right now. It's insane. Mm. Um, it's well, same a, here. <laughs> yeah. Don't let's yeah. even go here politically. Yeah. yeah. Um, Roe versus Wade, hello. Oh, God. Do you know what I, do you know, there's something. I often say this. I think abortion to Americans is what refugees are to Australians. It must be. I mean. It's an issue that's not really an issue. I know. But two-thirds of the population want to keep it. Mm -hmm. So, But nonetheless, the politicians are going to work their way away from it if they can. Mm -hmm. And um, we've got very dirty politics going on here right now. Uh, Maybe politics has always been dirty, but I remember my father saying to us all in 1977, He'd been in, um, he'd been a cabinet, a senator and a cabinet minister. And he said, this game is getting dirty and I'm getting out. Mm. So maybe he was cleaner than most. Mm. That's certainly um, a sort of what you like to think. Yeah, you do. Um, in terms of being 80, do you reflect upon your life and do you, I don't know, People I guess. People ask me, at, well, now yeah. that you're 80, I mean, the interviewers tend to ask, what, what's the answer? And I say, there is no answer, is the answer. Yeah. You're going to keep growing and changing and you're going to sit still in a chair. I'm not going to sit still in a chair. No. My question is, um, and I can already see that, so that's I know that, but my question is reflecting on the life that you've lived. Do you, mm-hmm. for instance, have any, you know, huge regrets, Regret? anything that you would do differently, anything? Yeah, I probably would have stayed in university instead of dropping out and learned some history. Um, I would not have lied to my headmistress when my parents went overseas and told her that they wanted me to drop math and Latin. Now, that was really stupid. I was 14 (laughs) and I actually getting 95 in Latin. I was never good at math, let's face it. So when I left, I went to the headmistress and said, and I was known as a girl who didn't lie. (laughs) So I I lied and said they want me to drop math and Latin. That's a pity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I do feel I did one good thing in boarding school. They want, we had five prefects and they asked me to be head girl. And I said, no, I don't believe in that. I believe in democracy. We will all five prefects be head girl turnabout. So we all were for that year. We were all head prefects for a month or two at a time. Yeah. Uh, Brought democracy to the boarding school. I don't think it lasted. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think in terms of uh, regrets, that's, that happened when you were 14, but in the end, it's not like you've lived the life that you thought you were going to live, but no, you've but enjoyed. But you have enjoyed and embraced the life that you've lived. I think yes. Yeah. I, I mean, which is not to say it hasn't been full of some deep tragedies. Mm-hmm. It has. And when my husband died, my brother told me, "You will scream. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself to scream." And the grief and the shock. I did not understand the shock for the longest time. Mm-hmm. But I think I've found my footing and I intend to go forward working and annoying people for as long as possible. Mm. Oh, well, I think keep going. Uh, Judy, we're out of time. Thank you so much for speaking so with nice us today. Thank you so much for being here. I really had fun. So it will be such a privilege to meet you. And for me too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.